This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. Banti has pointed out that we are an ecumenical Buddhist movement. Now, I should make it quite clear from the beginning that this does not mean that we are a Christian Buddhist movement. (laughs) Even though the word ecumenical does refer to the worldwide unity of Christian churches, I think we need to make it quite clear, I hope you understand this, that we are not a Christian movement, neither we are a Buddhist Christian nor a Christian Buddhist movement. Banti is, of course, using the word in the rather rarer meaning of universal. So we are a universal Buddhist movement. In fact, the word uh, ecumenical uh, derives from an expression meaning that people inhabit one house. So I think that gives you some idea of what he means. It's as though we inhabit the Buddhist house. We're part of the Buddhist family. Now, as you know, in a family, people are quite different. But they, they live together give or take, they live together in harmony in one house. So this is the idea of, um, of ecumenical. It means that we live together in one house. We are, as it were, a one family. So we inhabit the same house as other Buddhists. In practice, our ecumenicalism means the following, and this is a quote from Banti. The word signifies that in principle we accept the whole Buddhist tradition as it has developed over the centuries in the East. It means that we do not identify ourselves exclusively with any one Eastern sect or tradition. We learn from all, we appreciate all, and we are inspired by all. So there are two main points here. The first is that we accept the whole Buddhist tradition as it has developed over the centuries in the East. And secondly, it means that we do not identify ourselves exclusively with any one Eastern sect or tradition. Those are the two main points. So, this actually all sounds pretty straightforward, doesn't it? And probably pretty appealing. After all, it's very non-dogmatic, and it's all-encompassing. It seems very straightforward, very clear. But... Is it quite as straightforward as this? Let's just look into it a little bit. And I'm going to start by looking at the second one. The fact that we do not identify ourselves exclusively with any one Eastern sect or tradition. Now many, many years ago, about 25 years ago, I asked Banti um, what to me was a very important question. I asked him on whose authority he started the FWBO. Now, at that time, I was wondering about this man, Sangrakshita. I was actually already in the order at this time, but I was still wondering about him. I was wondering what his game was. You know, what, what was he actually up to? I was also wondering if he was right in what he said about Buddhism. I mean, I didn't know anything about Buddhism. And I'd met this, this chap, you know, on this retreat, claiming to be a Buddhist, saying all these things about Buddhism. I didn't really know uh, whether he was giving me the Buddhist line or not. 
I could read a few books and check it up and it seemed okay, but I couldn't really be certain. I needed to know if he was right in what he said. I needed to know, in a way, if he spoke with the authority of of Buddhism. This was particularly important uh, when he was saying some things that I didn't feel at all comfortable about. Like, for example, that I should be thinking of living in a single-sex community. This I found you know, quite unacceptable and undesirable at that time. Um, and so I was just wondering, well, is this really Buddhism? You know, is it really Buddhism to live in single-sex communities? Or should I carry on with my girlfriend or girlfriends, whatever, the, you know, whatever week it was? <laughs> so, in the end, I asked him, who sent him to England uh, to start the FWBO? Or at least, who gave him the authority to do it? And he looked me straight in the eye with a little glint in the eye and he said, no one, I decided to do it myself. (laughs) His answer actually shook me to the core. On the one hand, I was a bit of an individualist. So I was kind of pleased with his answer. You know, it was quite a a groovy answer, really. Um, But also, I was amazed at his confidence. He didn't try and give me any kind of fluff. He just said, no, I decided to do it myself. That's why I decided, that's why I did it. I was stunned at his confidence that he should just come and start a new Buddhist movement, as it were, without the backing of a church. And I was also amazed that our movement had no firm foundation of institutional authority. And, gentlemen, it still doesn't. In a way, we don't have any foundation of institutional authority. There's no institution anywhere else in the world that has ever said, let there be the FWBO, or let us create the FWBO. It's been created out of the inspiration of Sangrakshita and others. When Banti said this to me, I felt a kind of wave of preeti go running across my back. I felt an incredible confidence in my teacher, at that point, I, I think his confidence came across and it, and it hit me. And I decided that, well, I shared, I shared his confidence. I was confident in my teacher for no other reason than the fact that I felt confident in him. He didn't have the Dalai Lama's stamp of approval. He didn't even say that he had his teacher's stamp of approval, although I later discovered that he did, did discuss coming to uh, the UK with Dada Rinpoche and others. I felt confident and I felt liberated and I felt clean and clear, free of um, the confines, just to go ahead and help create this new movement. I was very happy then, and since then I've never had any doubts about my teacher. So we do not identify with any Eastern sect or tradition. We stand alone, but we stand firmly rooted in the Buddhist tradition. Our roots, we might be a, a single tree, as it were, Um, but we stand rooted in the earth of the Dharma. Bhante has also said that we accept the whole of the Buddhist tradition. But do we accept the whole of the Buddhist tradition? Do we accept all teachings and practices of the Buddhist tradition? For example, in fact, for eight examples... Do we accept that you must be ordained according to the Vinaya to be a real Buddhist? 
If you do, and this is part of the Buddhist tradition, it's a real problem for you, because you're not going to be ordained according to the Vinaya. Therefore, according to Eastern tradition, you won't be a real Buddhist. Number two, do we accept that ordination for women is now totally impossible and that they are therefore barred from serious spiritual practice? This is part of Eastern Buddhism. Many countries, Buddhists believe this very strongly. If we believe it, then, well, none of us, but certainly our sisters in the order will have a serious problem. Thirdly, the view that without initiation, tantric initiation, one's practice is corrupt. This is part of some schools, this view. Well, we can't get tantric initiation from your teachers. You're not going to get tantric initiation. The initiation that you get at um, ordination is not a tantric initiation. So, if you want tantric initiation, if you feel that you, you can't practice without it, well, then there's a serious problem. Another teaching that comes from another school in the East is that the White Lotus Sutra is the only real teaching. All the earlier sutras are incomplete and actually misleading. Do we believe that? Do we believe that we should take the advice of some meditation teachers and only meditate? avoiding at all costs the corrupting study of Buddhist texts? Do we accept the view of some modern academic Buddhists, supported by Buddhists in the East, that meditation just generates woolly thinking and a superstitious and mystical mind which corrupts the clear, sharp thinking needed for insight? Do we believe that the Mahayana is corrupt, and that the Vajrayana is even more corrupt, whereas the Hinayana is just a lesser teaching for those who are spiritually immature. These are all teachings coming from Eastern traditions. Do we accept them? If and if we accept those teachings, which I hope we don't, um, then the whole of the whole tradition, then we open ourselves up to some quite serious problems some quite serious confusions, at least if we only look at them superficially. For example, if we look at Japanese Buddhism, we'll find on the one hand there's the Zen school. The Zen school emphasizes effort, discipline, drive, push, cutting off from the world, going into a monastery, working hard, not stopping, keeping on going, working hard with the teacher, zap, 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 you know, really pushing thrusting, thumping your way to enlightenment. The Pure Land School says, you're saved already. Amitabha has already saved you. You know, so, um, well, you know, there's not much problem really. You don't really need to do anything. You know, you've already been saved. You're already enlightened. So, you know, just lead a good life. You know, get on with your family and career and, and just, you know, pootle along um, being um, a good Buddhist. Two schools of Buddhism quite confusing, at least if looked at only superficially. If we start to study Tibetan Buddhism, for example, I hope I'm not putting you all off, but <laughs> if, if you start to study Tibetan Buddhism, you might get really interested in Tsongkhapa. You know, there's lots and lots to read, lots of books to read, lots to study. Tsongkhapa puts an incredible emphasis on having a broad experience of the whole tradition. 
that's what you're going to devote your life to. The study of all the sutras, all the tantras, all the shastras, everything. Get it all packed in there. Know it all. You know, be a true follower of Tsongkhapa. But then you come across Milarepa. While you're studying all these texts of Tsongkhapa, you come across Milarepa. Milarepa, one gets the impression that he couldn't even read. All he did was went off in the mountains and meditate. Lived an incredibly hard life. So what are we going to do? Are you going to settle in the monastery and study? Or are you going to go in the mountains and live in a cave? But then you start thinking, well, what, maybe Padmasambhava. You know, Padmasambhava wore all these fantastic robes, you know, and he could do all the magical stuff. He started monasteries and he dealt with demons. I mean, he had a really kind of, you know, cracking life. I mean, he really sort of got out there and engaged with it all. Entered into the whole of uh, Sangsaric existence, transforming it all magically. Which of those are you going to follow? Tsongkhalpa, Milarepa, or Padmasambhava? They're all heads of schools. They all have incredible weight and authority. But which one of them is the right one? So, in what way do we accept the teachings and practices of the whole Buddhist tradition? Clearly, we can't do it just superficially. We have to look at those teachers and practices critically. But how? What kind of uh, criticism, what kind of system of criticism can we apply to those teachings? Well, we have to learn to think and reflect for ourselves. And we have to refer to the wise. One could give a whole talk on what is meant by the wise. In fact, it would be a great talk to give, I think. Um, I can't go into it now. I'll say a little bit about it later on. But what I'm suggesting is that we do have to think and reflect very deeply for ourselves. We live under certain conditions. We live under certain conditions of the weather. The weather here, today particularly, is very different from the weather in India. It's very different from the weather in Tibet. It's even different from the weather in, in Japan. We live under certain conditions. We live under the conditions of the weather. But we live under other climates as well. We live in a particular economic climate where there are various winds of economic change. We live in a particular socio-sexual climate where there are different attitudes towards sexuality. We live in a very particular and unique intellectual climate where our approach to things intellectually is, um, is quite, uh, quite unique. So, for example, living the lifestyle outlined in the Vinaya is probably not appropriate for our weather, nor our economic climate. You know, wandering around here in one, um, one robe, going round the village of Surningham with one bowl, um, I don't think we'd be able to establish this kind of community. So we may not accept that living according to the Vinaya is the only way to live the Buddhist life. However, we do accept the principles of a simple, harmless and chaste life. It was this simple, harmless, chaste life that motivated the early monks. And it's still a goal that we res respect and to varying degrees desire to emulate. But we will do it in a way that's appropriate to our weather our economic climate, and so on. 
Another example, we live in the intellectual climate of the higher criticism. We can we have a, an approach to criticism that's to do with to do with literature, to do with language, to do with history. With these perspectives, the historical and the linguistic, uh, we can criticize the Buddhist text. We can look at the Buddhist text from a particular historical and linguistic angle. Now this means that we cannot accept teachings as literally as they were accepted in other, um, other times and places, in other Buddhist cultures. For us, it's impossible to accept certain things literally because we have this higher, this broader perspective. For example, traditionally the Mahayana and Vajrayana schools, the teachings of those schools, are seen as being the actual words of the Buddha. Within those traditions, um, the, the, the followers of them believe that these teachings were actually given verbally by the Buddha. We can't believe that. We can't, uh, we can't generally accept that. However, we can see these schools um, in their historical and literary context and still value them. We don't have to insist on literal understandings. So, we have to investigate the teachings and practices of all Buddhist traditions and we must ask how they're relevant to us in our practice. However, a warning. We must be careful not to pick and choose um, the teachings just because we like or dislike them. For example, when reading the life of Milarepa, we might like this idea of a free life, you know, wandering around from place to place. We might find that very attractive, so we might sort of tend to choose that. But we may not like the fact that he's celibate and lived for much of his life working very hard for his teacher for years and years and years, and then went to live without any food in the mountain for years and years more. We will take the, you know, the free wandering spirit of Milarepa, but we don't want the graft. Well, we mustn't make these kind of distinctions just on the basis of likes and dislikes. Another warning is we shouldn't approach unpopular references um, with superficial um, resolutions. For example, if we take the Buddha's attitude to the ordination of women, I won't go into what it is, but it's outlined in uh, Bhante's uh, talk, The Wreath of Blue Lotuses. If we look at the Buddha's attitude towards the ordination of women, we might find, well, culturally, we might find this is, this is unacceptable. It doesn't actually fit in with our cultural view of what the Buddha ought to feel like towards, uh, towards women and the nuns. We say, therefore, well, the Buddha, poor chap, was just a product of the unenlightened social views that were around at, the, at his time, and he was under their influence. So the poor old Buddha didn't really see the true nature of, of what was going on with women. He was, he was dominated, he was conditioned by his social environment, and that's why he said these things. So we can just forget about them. I'll put this in. This is, this is an interesting little thing I discovered. And I think this, I, the reason I give this is, is to illustrate how important it is to actually think about the Dharma. There, is a, there are a certain list of Mahayana precepts, one of which says that the Bodhisattva should never refuse a woman, and you know in what way I mean, if to do so would offend her. Yeah? Now we think, wow, this is, this is interesting. Um, 
I think I might take that precept on. <laughs> because in our mind, what we've got in mind is some you know, young, attractive woman who just cannot bear to be refused by us, or young, attractive man, we can make that correspondence, and we think, well, that will, you know, that will be okay, I'll go with that. But what the precept is, is that the Bodhisattva should never refuse a woman to do, you know, refuse a woman, if to do so would offend her. Now, this includes older women, fatter women, ugly women, women with their face covered with sores, leprous women, women on their deathbed. That's what it means. It means if you can do that, if you can really function as a bodhisattva, well, then you can take on that precept. But if you can't, then go back to the old one. See what I mean? You have to think about these things. We tend to take our own preconceptions, our own prejudices, and leap forward. But let's really think about the teachings fully. Think what they really mean. So it's a problem, isn't it? Deciding what is the right teaching. How to practice a teaching. However, we can, as usual, go back to basic Buddhist teachings and we can look at what the Buddha taught to the Kalamas. Um, Surita mentioned this briefly yesterday in his talk, but I'm going to say just a little bit more about it. The Kalamas, you'll remember, were a tribe of people who at that time were inundated with all sorts of different teachers, people from all different kinds of traditions. They had teachings coming out of their earrolls, and they just didn't know what to do with them. They didn't know which to accept and which to reject. So, sensible people that they were, they went to see the Buddha, and they asked the Buddha his opinion on how, on which teachings should be accepted and which should be rejected. And this was the answer that the Buddha gave. He said, of course you are uncertain, Kalamas. Of course you are in doubt. When there are reasons for doubt, uncertainty is born. So, in this case, Kalamas, don't go by reports, by legends, by traditions, by scripture, by logical conjecture, by inference, by analogies, by agreement with each other through pondering views, by probability, or by the thought, this contemplative is our teacher. When you know for yourselves that these qualities are unskillful, these qualities are blameworthy, these qualities are criticized by the wise, these qualities, when undertaken and carried out, lead to harm and to suffering, then you should abandon them. One could talk for a week on this paragraph by going through each of those ways in which one should not judge a teaching. Um, I've done this with Banti over a period of several days, and, and what one finds happening is all one's basis for establishing the authority of something get undermined. Everything gets destroyed. And you're basically left with, with Shraddha. You're basically left with your response to the teaching and your imagined, at, imagined you, you, your imagination because you, 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 the Buddha has said that um, 
when these qualities are criticized by the wise? Well, we don't really know who the wise are. The Buddha doesn't uh, say that. So what we have to do is imagine the wise. We just have to imagine who they are and see what they would respond to something. Or we have to find those that we consider slightly more wise than us or lots more wise than us, those people that we know that we can go and talk to about it and consider their opinions. But take none of these things on authority. In the end, it comes back to our own response of shraddha, of faith, whether we know something is right or not. Is it essential that one wears the yellow robe and begs from house to house to follow the spiritual life? I don't think it is. That's my response. That's the response of those that I trust as well. So therefore, I don't really think that that is part of the essential teachings of the Buddha. Although, of course, the fact that people do that is great. There's nothing against them actually doing it. Do you see what I mean? In the Kalama Sutta, the Buddha then goes on to give an example of applying this method, which is well worth, uh, well worth reading. I don't have time to go into it now. But we have to ask this same question. Or we can even put it in our own language. We can say, will this teaching, or will it not, support my attempts to go more deeply for refuge to the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha? That's the question that we have to ask. That's the importance of what... Um, Surita was stressing last night the centrality of going for refuge. That's the only thing that we don't change in our order. What we have to do with everything else is say, does this thing help me and others to go for refuge more deeply to the Buddha, Dharma and Sangha or not? That is the crucial question. We can think and reflect for ourselves on this question um, and we can also uh, ask the wise to consider it. In other words, we can discuss it with those who are a little more wise than ourselves, or we can actually just ask ourselves, well, what would the Buddha say in this situation? I, I think that works quite well quite often, particularly if you have a strong sense of connection with the Buddha. You can basically ask him. You can ask the Buddha in your imagination, what would he do? What would he say in this particular situation? And sometimes you can get a very helpful, shocking and challenging answer. So, thus again, we go back to basic principles and we go back to the basic principles in the Pali Suttas in order to help us work our way through this, this jungle of um, teachings and practices of the schools of the East. So, yes, we are an ecumenical movement. We are an ecumenical Buddhist movement, but we must apply our critical judgment to those teachings and um, practices of the Buddhist tradition. And also, we must develop strength and confidence to realize that um, we are um, not uh, exclusively identified with any Eastern sect or tradition. We are, in fact, a new school of Buddhism that's firmly rooted in the traditions of the old schools. Let me move on now to the question of uh, unity. Banti has said that we are a unified movement in a general sense, and this is a quote, and in a specific sense. In a general sense, membership of the FWBO TBMSG is open to all. It's open to all regardless of nationality, race, colour, education, 
class or caste, cultural background, gender, sexual orientation, or age. Banty also says, I hope I've covered everything, otherwise someone is sure to find fault. He goes on to say, all are accepted, all are welcomed, all have a place. All are seen and valued by themselves and by others, primarily as individuals. In a specific sense, he goes on to say, we are a unified movement in that membership of the order, which is the heart of the movement, is open to both men and women on equal terms. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you 